Hi, this is Pastor Rob Stone from Duns Creek Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for listening to our weekly audio sermons podcast. Duns Creek Baptist Church is a community alive by grace and known by love. We long to be a force for good here in Putnam County, Florida. You can learn more about us on the web by visiting dunscreekbaptist.org or visit us any Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. for worship. Now, please enjoy the message. And you can have a seat. We are so glad that you're here. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade. Yeah, the roaring 20s. Again, again. So we're just going to pray that nine years from now, we don't find ourselves getting ready to jump into a global depression. That's, we're just... We're hoping history does not repeat itself. But hey, we are in a brand new year. We are in a brand new decade. And if you have been a part of Dunn's Creek for longer than a year, you know that we do something a little strange here. Uh, maybe strange for others. We think it's powerful. I don't know if you do this personally in your own life, but something I really believe for us corporately is that I believe that God has new mercies every day. We know that from the word of God that his mercies are new every day, that, that God has a fresh start for you every day, but there is something about a new year. And we really believe in the word of God, this idea of anointing the year, anointing the year with blessing, anointing the year with gladness. And we really believe that God has given us kind of an anointing word for the year. And so the last few years, last year, our, our word was amplify. And the year before that, our word was vibrant. Look at y'all. And the year before that, our word was discomfort. Discomfort. You see, we really believe that God kind of gives us these words to just help us paint a picture and a vision of what he has in store for our year. And so I want to tell you that for a long time, Leading up to last October, we, we do a staff retreat in October, and, and, and we kind of, everyone kind of comes prepared and prayed up and ready to just share with, with everyone else kind of what God has laid on their heart. And, and for like six months through last year, I just, I really felt like God had given this particular word, and there was so much that is connected to that. And over the next 12 months, we're really going to kind of, you know, really look at all the implications of that and kind of untangle all of that. But I just really feel so powerfully certain that where we're going in the next year is not just something that's going to be for this body. I just believe that the word God has for us this year is going to be something that impacts this whole community, that it's going to impact other churches in this community, because I just believe God has something powerful for us in the new year. And so our word for 2020 is simplify. And the idea behind simplify is that we live in a time, we live in days where you and I are constantly inundated with noise. We're constantly inundated with new information. Never before in human history have you had more information at your fingers' access. How many of you have a smartphone with you right now? 
This is what's crazy. In your pocket or in your purse right now, you hold a stronger computer than that that was used to launch the Apollo 11 missions. Can you believe that? In your, inside of your pocket, inside of your purse. And what's crazy about that is that we've got access to everything all the time. And so what happens for us is we've just gotten used to the world being complicated and complex. And we've gotten so used to so much noise coming from everywhere that that noise just becomes this slow drone that we hear all the time. One of the things that's happening, more and more children, more and more kids that are in my my children's age, more and more people that are part of my generation, more and more people that are part of Jake's generation, is that we're seeing a greater increase in the experience of anxiety. Anxiety disorders are on the rise. And one of the reasons that some scientists posit that we're seeing this increase in anxiety disorders is that the human brain, the makeup of the human brain was not, it's just not ready to be inundated so constantly, especially with so many screens. We spend so much time a day staring at a screen and what happens is when you're staring at a screen and your brain is processing information but your body's not moving, after a while your body's way of dealing with that is it releases this chemical called dopamine. And dopamine is a drug, it's a drug in your brain that your, that your body releases essentially to paralyze your body as your brain takes on information. Dopamine is what gets released while you sleep. It's what you have in your brain so that what you do in your dream, you're not doing in real life. And so what ends up happening is we spend so much time looking at screens that we've all become dopamine addicts. And so children have become desensitized because once you have a drug, you need more and more and more of that drug for it to have the same impact, for it to have the same effect. And so at a certain point, your body can't produce any more dopamine. And so where does all this anxiety come from? Some scientists believe it's because we've we've got generations of dopamine addicts. And so we're living in this time frame, we're living in this world where we've got so much being thrown at us and it's, and it's causing addiction-like behavior. It's causing addiction-like symptoms within us. And so something has got to change because not just the church, it's not that just the church will lose the next generation, it's the world will lose the next generation. And so we've got to start thinking differently. We've got to decide that we're not going to be like the rest of the world, that the church is going to be different. And so in response to all of the noise of the world, what could be more beautiful for us than to simplify, than to break everything down to this is what we believe. This is what we're willing to stake our lives on. So simplify is our word for the year, but the first sermon series out of the gate is a sermon series we're doing called We Believe. And so I want to give you a lot of history today. Your pastor's a history nerd. I hope you'll take the journey there with me. But I want to tell you something that we find that's interesting in the Bible. How many of you know what a creed is? Okay, not many. So there's not, not a ton of us, so a few of you were raised Catholic Most of you are raised Baptist. As Baptists, we don't really know what creeds are because creeds are those old Catholic things and so they must be of the devil. 
or, or such you were taught when you were raised as Baptist. I was raised Nazarene, and so I was definitely taught that. And so a creed is essentially a statement of faith. The creed is a statement of faith. And a creed is important because what you need to know is what happened when Jesus died and rose again and appeared to so many and then ascended to heaven. And shortly after that, on the day of Pentecost, the church was launched and the church exploded in growth and exponentially grew for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. And the reason that you and I are here today as the church is because the church exploded in growth. But during that whole time of explosive growth, most most of the people who came to believe in Jesus could not read or write. And it would be almost five centuries before there would be a compiled, canonized collection of works that we know today as the Bible. Which means, for the first five centuries of growth of the church... It wasn't like you could just say to people, here's what we believe, and hand them a book. So you had to be able to communicate what it was you believed in a way that was memorable and portable. That I can learn what it is we believe, and it can be ingrained in my brain such that I can go over here and tell someone else, this is what we believe. And so those are what creeds were. And interestingly, interestingly enough, there's actually a creed in our Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we have as what is considered the Pauline creed, and it's not Paul who comes up with this creed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I gave to you what I myself received. So it's Paul communicating a creed that had been, that had been told to him by the church in Jerusalem when he first became a believer. And so Paul takes this creed from the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, the the disciples of Jesus, who saw the, the living Jesus who walked beside him and who saw his resurrected body and who saw him ascend into heaven. These same followers of Jesus had an early creed, and the creed was unbelievably simple. We believe that Jesus was crucified, that he died and was raised to fulfill the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and James and the 12. That's the Pauline Creed that we find in 1 Corinthians. And this is what's crazy about the Pauline Creed we find in 1 Corinthians. It is, in your English Bibles, It is 40 words long. It's 40 words long. Now, about 150 to 200 years later, the Pauline Creed gave way to something we know as the Apostles' Creed. And there are hundreds of thousands of churches around the globe that still recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday together. And the Apostles' Creed, as we're going to get to this later on in the sermon, we've essentially taken the Apostles' Creed, and we've just updated some of the language so that it's not confusing for you. And essentially, our whole sermon series, where we're going to start the year off, is going to be based on the Apostles' Creed. 
But the Apostles' Creed comes out in the mid-third century, and the Apostles' Creed is 112 words long. That's it. But that means that the Pauline Creed that was given from the Apostles to Paul, that we hear quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, which is 40 words long, now is almost tripled in length to get to the Apostles' Creed, which is 112 words long. Well, you move forward about another 100 years, and there's an emperor in Rome named Constantine. And Constantine converts to Christianity. He becomes one of the most powerful converts to Christianity. Some historians argue whether or not he was actually a Christian convert, but we know for sure his wife and his daughter were Christian converts. But Constantine converts the Roman Empire to Christianity in 325. And so what happens is there is the Council of Nicaea around this period of time, because if you're going to convert an entire empire to a religion, you better have some certainty about what it is that religion believes. And so what came out of the Council of Nicaea was the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed was in 325, and it is 224 words long, meaning that it has doubled in length from the Apostles' Creed. Now, because Constantine converting the Roman Empire to Christianity is really where we see the, the, there was a Catholic church before this, but what we know is the Roman Catholic church was really kind of formed and, and kind of given its, its kind of foundational moments around this period of time. And so the Roman Catholic Church really was the primary uh, place where people received the Word of God and where they heard about the Word of God. And so you had the Latin Vulgate, which comes out in the 6th century. Jerome translates the Word of God into, into Latin. And so people do have some access to the Word of God in a language they can speak. But Latin is kind of the, the basic Roman language, but as soon as the Roman Empire grows and grows and grows, now there's more languages and not as many people speak Latin. And so what ends up happening is for about the next thousand years, you have the, the Roman Catholic Church. Now in 1054, the Roman Catholic Church splits into what we have as the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Roman Catholic Church. But both of them still affirm the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So we're still there about 224 words. And then in the 16th century comes the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther decides the Roman Catholic Church in the middle of the Mid-Ages is not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and he has some problems with what's going on. So he takes his 95 theses and he nails them up to the door of a church and basically says, here are my 95 problems with what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church. And this leads to the Protestant Reformation. And out of the Protestant Reformation becomes this new denomination and this new denomination and this new denomination and this new denomination and this new denomination. But Luther had a statement of faith. Martin Luther had his confession of faith. It's known as the Augsburg Confession. It was produced in 1530, and it is 13,738 words long. Now, about 100 years later, the Presbyterian Church was born, and the Presbyterian Church was really born out of something called the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession that comes out about 100 years later is 19,402 words long. 
You see what happens over time? The first generation who witnessed the resurrected Jesus, the generation that saw the resurrected Jesus, they needed 40 words to describe what they believed in. Here's what they believed. We believe in Jesus. We saw him crucified. His dead body was put in the ground. He was raised to life again. End of story. That's it. By the time we get to the Westminster Confession, it's essentially elaborate theses written on systematic theology. Now, if I am trying to get you to memorize 40 words, it's a lot easier than trying to get you to memorize 19,402 words. And if you've ever had children, you know this to be true. The sun did not shine, it was too wet to play, so we could not go out on that cold, cold, wet day. I sat there with Sally, we sat there, we too, and I said, how I wish we had something to do. That's the first two pages of Cat in the Hat. My mom and dad read Cat in the Hat to me as a kid, and I knew as a child of three, every word to Dr. Seuss's Cat in the Hat. Cat in the Hat is more than 500 words long. The beauty of a simple creed is it's memorable. And if it's memorable, it's portable. Now, you may be sitting here today and going, yeah, Rob, but those are you're, you're talking about Catholics and Lutherans and Presbyterians. What about us Baptists? Okay. In 1963, Herschel Hobbes oversees the original writing of the Baptist Faith and Message of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Baptist Faith and Message is not nearly as elaborate as the Westminster Confession, but the Baptist Faith and Message is 5,007 words long. So, quick raise of Baptist hands. How many of you have the Baptist Faith and Message memorized? No one? See, the problem for us is that we live in a world with more and more denominations and more and more divisions. We live in a world where you and I have found a million reasons to say we are different from them. And it's not just our doing, it's what we've inherited. Because over the last 2,000 years, with each new exceedingly complicated confession of faith, a greater degree of division has been introduced into the church. Every time a new, exceedingly complicated confession of faith is increased, it has served not to unify us, but to divide us. The human tendency has always been and will always be toward complexity. Therefore, if we're going to simplify, simplicity requires intentionality. Simplicity requires intentionality. We don't get simple without intention because our natural tendency is towards complexity. The, the world's tendency is towards complexity. The world's tendency is towards noise. If we want to be clear, 
We have to be simple. And being simple takes intentionality. So in 2020, church, our word is simplify. Because we don't want to be another church that divides. In fact, in 2020, our heart is to focus more on the simple gospel that unites rather than the complexity that divides. In 2020, our heart is to focus on a simple gospel that unites people, that unites the church, that unites the community, that unites the world. We are for unity in 2020 rather than division in simplifying is how we get there. There are an incredible number of denominations. There are, there are Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches. There are Presbyterian churches. There are Lutheran churches. There are non-denominational churches. There are Baptist churches. There are churches of every shape and size and kind that come together around the Apostles' Creed. Because in 112 words, we can figure out what it is we all agree on rather than getting to the nearly 20,000 words of all the things we disagree on. And so we're going to be a church in 2020 that focuses on the words we agree on. We're going to be a church that focuses on the things that unite us, on the things that brings us all together, because we are not here to form a Baptist kingdom. We are here to be members of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Come on. So, so church, I want to ask you if you'd read something with me. We've put some new language to the Apostles' Creed, and I'm going to ask if you would, would you stand and let's read this together. We believe in God, the Father, author and creator of all. We believe in God, the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the promised Messiah. He was crucified, died, and was buried, canceling the debt of our sin. On the third day, he rose again to bring us new life. He ascended to heaven. He will come again. We believe in God, the Spirit, our ever-present helper and advocate, breathing resurrection life into the redeemed, empowering and equipping us for our work on earth. We believe in the church, the connected body of global believers, the hands and feet of Christ. We believe in Christ's love as the model for every thought, word, and action toward God and man. We believe in the forgiveness of sin, resurrection power, and life overflowing and everlasting. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So, that's a whole lot of introduction to get to part one of our first sermon series out of the gate, but here's the good news. Here's what all you need to know 
for part one. Today we're gonna talk about what it means to believe in God the Father, creator and author of all. Genesis 1-1 tells us these words that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.16 tells us, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is what we read in Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. God created the heavens and the earth. Think about the first words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. We know that everything was made through him and for him. And we know that the Lord has made everything for its purpose. So what's the implication of that? What's the implication for me? If we believe that God is the creator and author of all, let's make it personal. If we believe that, what does it mean for me? There's a Mark Twain quote that I loved. And he says that the two most important days in a man's life are the day he is born in the day he finds out why. Mark Twain believed that the two most important days in your life is the day that your life begins and the day you find out why you are alive. Essentially, Mark Twain is saying the day you discover your purpose or the day that you discover you have purpose, the day that you discover that you were made with purpose is other than your birth, it is the most important day of your life. It's the day you find out why. So what do we believe? We believe that God made everything. And if God made everything, the implication of God making everything is that God made everyone. You were made by God. Every single person you know was made by God. Every single person you can't stand was made by God. Your in-laws were made by God. Your ex, your ex was made by God. Your children were made by God. Your boss was made by God. Your neighbors were made by God. The hard one for me to remember the other people around me in traffic were made by God. And this is the hard part. If we believe that, the next implication is God made everything with purpose. God made everything, God made everyone. 
God made everything with purpose, which means God has a purpose for everything. God has a purpose for everything in your life. God has a purpose for everything you encounter in your life. God has a purpose for all potholes in the highway. God has a purpose for everything. Which means, thank you, someone's been watching me drive. Which means God has a purpose for everyone. God has a purpose for everyone. God has a purpose for your family. God has a purpose for your in-laws. God has a purpose for your neighbors. God has a purpose for your ex. God has a purpose for your friends. God has a purpose for your enemies. God has a purpose for your coworkers. And most importantly, God has a purpose for me. God has a purpose The pushback in the Protestant world against the idea of a creed has been that it's too simple. It's too easy. But here's what I love about the God that we worship. God gives us simple because he knows we're not great with complicated. He knows we're not good with complex so God keeps it unbelievably simple. To take one of Pastor Tim's favorite phrases, God puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. What do we believe? We believe that God is the creator and author of everything. And the implication of that belief is that God has a purpose for me. You're not an accident. You're not here by some random one in a trillion chance of evolution. You are here today and alive and breathing because the God of all creation has a purpose for your life. The God who made everything, the God who breathed out the infinitely expanding universe looks at you and says, oh man, oh man, I got a purpose for them. I got a plan for them. I got something I want them to do. The God of all creation has a purpose for me. And so when we stand up and we sing together, we believe in God, the Father, the creator and author of all. What we are saying is, I believe God is not done with me yet. And I'm here for it. God, whatever it is, whatever your purpose is, whatever your will is, God, whatever it is that you made me for, God, I'm here for it. I may not know what it is yet. I may not know what it looks like yet, but God, I'm here for it. God, I'm excited about it. 
God, take me on the journey. I'm ready for it. To say that we believe God is the creator and author of all takes an unbelievable amount of surrender. Because for us to say that God is the creator and God is the author, it's us saying, I'm not the one who gets to decide. God, you're writing the story. I'm just so glad. I'm so thankful I get to be a character in it. God, you're the creator. God, I'm just so grateful that you chose to make me. When we say that we believe that God is the creator and author of all, we surrender our will to his will. 